Ephesians chapter 6. We're in the midst of a series called Surrounded, talking about the spiritual warfare around us. And as we were thinking about that, I mean, your mind naturally goes to general warfare. And I was um, thinking about my grandfather this week. My grandfather um, was a part of World War II. He was actually um, stationed in the uh, Pacific uh, theater, and so he was at Pearl Harbor when it was bombed. He was also at Midway. He was uh, all over the Philippines in his service time there. And so I was reading some stuff about the war, and I came across a story about this guy. We got a picture for you to see. All right, does anybody know who this guy is? Didn't think so. All right, this is Hiru Oneda. Now, now you got it right. Yeah, no, you don't have any idea either, right? Hiram Manet, he's an interesting guy. He comes from a long line of warriors in his family. In fact, he can trace his family line all the way back to some of his family being samurai warriors. His dad was actually a sergeant in the Japanese cavalry and fought and died in the second Sino-Japanese war in China. And so when he was 18 years old, Hiro signed up for the Japanese army. He enlisted. One year before he, uh, I mean, one year after he enlisted, Pearl Harbor happened, and suddenly Japan was put into a war with the United States of America and during the Second World War. He was trained during that year before in unconventional military techniques, propaganda and sabotage and guerrilla warfare and counterintelligence. He was stationed after that in Lubang Island in December of 1944, an island that was under Japanese control. But in February, the United States attacked and quickly defeated the Japanese there. He, seeing that that was about to happen, took three other men with him and escaped into the woods to continue the fight in a guerrilla warfare style of fighting. And he carried... His guerrilla warfare on that island on for 29 years. Now, I don't know how many of your history buffs here, but World War II did not last 29 years, right? In fact, the war was over a few months after he first went into the woods. He never knew the war was over. So he kept fighting. For 29 years, he and the men that he took in there, one by one, by the way, those men were either killed or they left. But one by one, they they kind of walked through this process of they would raid towns, attack villages, and go back into the woods. He received news throughout the time that the war was over. He just chose not to believe it. He thought it was propaganda. He thought it was lies. He thought it was fake news. Two of the three men that were with him died because a police caught them and killed them in the midst of a raid. One man went in there searching for him. He said there was a man, there was a Japanese man that was taking a tour of the world. And they asked him what he wanted to find on his tour of the world. And this man had become a little bit of a, of a, of a, a kind of a recluse and, a, and a, a figure that became an urban legend. And he said on his trip around the world, he wanted to see two things. He wanted to see an abominable snowman, a yeti. And he wanted to see Hiru. Well, he found him. And he told him the war had been over. This is 1974. And Hiru wouldn't believe him. He says, I will not surrender until a ranking officer tells me it's over. So they found his ranking officer, flew him to the island, 
sought him and found him, and he still didn't believe his ranking officer, but he said, I'll follow you as far as I can. He went with extra weapons, expecting a trap that he was going to fight himself out of. And this is the picture of him coming out of the jungle in 1974, March the 9th, when the last Japanese soldier finally surrendered in World War II. Isn't that a phenomenal story? By the way, he's still wearing the same uniform he had when he went into the woods. 29 years in the same uniform. Now you think, why in the world are you telling us a story about a guy that fought the World War II for 29 extra years? Because we live in a similar time when it comes to the spiritual warfare that we're in. The victory has already been won. Victory has been declared and God has won. On the cross and in the rising from the grave, victory has been accomplished. But there are those that are still fighting as if the war is going on. The enemy has not given up on destroying lives, on taking over places, on doing damage in the meantime before God ends it in a decisive way once and forever. Our enemy knows it's over, but he wants to wreak as much havoc as possible while he still can, and he uses tactics of deceit and discouragement and division and destruction. And over the next few weeks, after last week where we talked about the reality of this war and the reality of our enemy, I want to talk about the strategies that we have, according to Scripture, to be equipped to fight the battle in our lives. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 13, says this. For this reason, again, that's what we talked about last week, because our battle is against not flesh and blood, but against authorities and rulers and cosmic powers and evil and darkness. For this reason, take up the full armor of God, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having prepared everything, to take your stand. One of the things that's interesting about this passage of Scripture is multiple times we are told to stand. Stand firm. Even in this verse, he says, because we know that a spiritual war is raging, we need to learn to be able to take a stand and to stand firm where we are. It doesn't say anything about advancing. It doesn't say anything about going forward. What it says is, the victory has been won. Do not give up any territory to the enemy. Stand firm. Even when you want to quit. Even when it's difficult. Even when you've fallen. Even when the fiery darts of doubt are coming. Stand firm. But then he says, the way that we stand firm is to make sure we have the full armor of God. And what we have over the next several verses are a description of that armor. The next verse, verse 14, tells us this. Stand, again, there's that word. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. Now, here's what's interesting about Paul writing the letter to the Ephesians. Most people believe that while he was writing this letter to the Ephesians, that he was bound in a Roman jail with a guard standing beside him in full Roman armor. 
that he would have been standing there, literally chained to a guy, and as he's looking at the guy, he decides, you know what, that's a pretty good illustration, I'll just use that. Use what's around here, right? And so he begins to describe the armor of the man that is there. Now, he is not trying to give a full description of every piece of armor that a Roman soldier might be wearing, but he is trying to give an understanding for us of the things that we have, that God has already given us, that we need to use every day in our Living out our faith for the Lord. Stand firm. And the first thing that he tells us there is that we are to stand with truth like a belt around your waist. Now maybe you have an older translation of that or one that translates it a little bit differently. Stand having girded your loins with truth. Well that's a phrase we use every day, right? When's the last time you told somebody, have you girded your loins with truth today? Right? So what does he mean, stand with girding your loins for truth or with a belt like around your waist? Well, first of all, we do have to understand what the piece of equipment was on the Roman soldier and then ask the question, what does that mean for us and what does truth relate to that? And for the Roman soldier, one of the most important pieces of equipment he would have as a part of his armor was his belt. Now, for most of us in this room, belts aren't that important unless we got to keep our pants up. Right? Y'all act like that's not really the purpose of a belt, all right? Like, that's the reason we put them on, all right? But for a Roman soldier, it was vital. In fact, every other piece of armor somehow linked to the belt. Every soldier would wear this tunic, the long, uh, long piece of clothing. They could, while they were marching, while they were walking, while they were just hanging out, they could wear it long down. But they had a belt around it, and on that belt would have been the sword attached, and the breastplate would have been tucked into the belt, and everything would have hung off of the belt. And when war came, when the fight began, they would take that Tunic, and they would tuck it into their belt so that they weren't tripped up while they were running in the battle. It literally held everything together on the soldier's outfit. And so he says, truth has got to be like a belt encircling our lives. Well, what kind of truth are we talking about here? Are we talking about just facts? Just like... Trivial pursuit answers? Well, the Bible never acts like that's going to be what protects us. What about the Word of God? He's talking about the Word of God here. I don't think in this particular place he's talking specifically about the Word of God, although the truth that he speaks of is talked about in the Word of God. I don't think he's talking about the Word of God because we'll find out in a couple of weeks when we get through the rest of the armor that what happens is he calls the Word of God a different part of the armor. Here I think he's talking about a truthfulness that comes from the reality of the truth who is Jesus. That as we understand the truth of who Jesus is, as we understand who Christ is in our lives, that we must then live our lives with truthfulness, with sincerity, with authenticity. Do you know what the greatest complaint the outside world has about followers of Jesus is still to this day. It's when they ask, what do you think of Christians in general terms? They usually give two or three answers, but number one, always at the top of the list is that they're hypocrites. People that say they believe one thing, but they act another. 
The belt of truth means that we live out the truth of who Christ is in our lives in authentic ways every day. We are who we say we are. We live what we actually believe. From the very beginning, the biggest tactic that the enemy has used, that Satan has used to deceive God's people is the act of questioning whether we truly are who God says we are. Whether we actually do what God says we ought to do. And that we ought to live our lives with sincerity and authenticity and truth. We ought to look like a Christian, talk like a Christian, play the part of a Christian in everything that we do. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, everything you have. That we live our lives completely devoted to Christ. And the first thing that's going to protect us from the enemy, from the evil one, is to actually be who we claim to be. To live it out. Now there's some areas where that's really, really tough. Like when it comes to personal responsibility for our own lives. Man, it's so easy to see the truth of what the shortcomings are for other people and not own up to our own responsibility about what's wrong with our lives. It's hard to be truthful sometimes about our motives. That this is who we are. This is... While we're doing what we're doing, we like to think of ourselves better than we actually are. It's hard to be truthful about the the path our lives are on and the destination that is out there. We like to think that we can overcome our own mistakes or not really think that much about what's coming instead of being honest about what's actually happening in our lives. And one of the most difficult ways that we have in living out the truth is just the way that we use our words. There's a famous quote that says, a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth can get its boots on. You ever heard that? I've heard it attributed to like four people. So I went this week to find out who it was supposed to be attributed to and nobody knows. There have been multiple lies about that particular quote about how fast a lie can get around the world. I don't know if that's irony or not, but it's weird. All right. Lies can travel halfway around the world before truth can get its boots on. We have to make sure that what we're speaking, what we're saying, what we're conveying is truth. One of the ways that Satan attacks his people, his church, the people that God has called to his own, one of the ways that Satan attacks us as his enemy is through innuendo and gossip and falsehoods that we allow to happen among us. Can I tell you something? I've been doing this pastor thing now for over 17 years. And the church is one of the worst places I've ever seen for gossip. It's amazing how it happens that way. A place committed to truth allows falsehood to get around the block. Are you living your life with sincerity? Are you living your life actually being who you say you are? And when you speak, are you speaking truth? Or are you allowing spiritual warfare to invade your life? But not being truly who Christ has called you to be. And not speaking the truth that God's called you to speak. 
We need to live truthfully. The second thing we need to do, it tells us, is not only do we need to have the the belt of truth around us, but we need to be protected by the breastplate of righteousness. We need to live faithfully. The breastplate that's described here would have been two layers of leather that would have been overlaid with metal and sometimes animal bones. It would have been tucked into the belt and its primary job was to protect the vital organs of the person that was wearing it. The primary job of the breastplate of righteousness was to protect the person wearing it against anything that might come towards their vital organs. So the question then becomes, okay, so what kind of righteousness are we talking about here? First of all, we've got to live truthfully. We've got to live what we say we believe. But secondly, what does it mean to live righteously or to live faithfully? Well, it's not talking about self-righteousness here because Scripture makes it very clear that my righteousness, your righteousness, is filthy rags before our Savior. That whatever you and I choose to do, even on our best day, even our best acts, even those things you are most proud of in your life that you have accomplished, that you have done, are like filthy rags in the presence of our God in his perfection. That's not me, that's Isaiah saying that. So it can't be self-righteousness because we can't muster up righteousness within ourselves. It can't be um, just this kind of washy kind of, well, we're just going to do the right thing, this moralistic understanding of life. What is meant here is that we depend upon and trust in the righteousness that is given to us by Christ through His death and resurrection. And because we have been set free, we then live our lives as if we believe we've been set free and we live for the glory of God and doing what God has called us to do. One of the first ways that the enemy will attack you and will attack me and will attack our brothers and sisters in Christ is to make us think that we are not saved, that we are not faithfully being delivered from sin by Christ. And so what they do is you begin to doubt yourself. You doubt your salvation. You doubt God's love for you. You doubt whether God has your best interest at heart. Again, this has been going on since Genesis chapter 3. Remember in the garden, Adam and Eve are there in perfect lives. They haven't done anything wrong. The serpent comes up and says, does God... God really care about you. Now, the way he says that is, God didn't say you could eat that fruit, did he? Well, why would he want you to eat that fruit? You're missing out. Man, you're missing out. That's the best fruit. I can't believe God wouldn't tell. God doesn't care about you. If God cared about you, he'd let you have whatever you wanted to have. He'd let you be whoever you wanted to be. He'd let you experience whatever you want to experience. And before we're saved, Satan will deceive us into thinking that's the way life is supposed to be. You go pursue your passion, you pursue your life, you pursue your dream, you pursue your passions in life. And don't worry about what anybody else says. I mean, our culture is overrun with this idea that your best life is pursuing whatever you want to pursue, even though multiple times we have seen that pursuing whatever it is you want to pursue leads absolutely nowhere. Listening to a podcast this week about um, Aaron Hernandez, and I don't know if you remember that name, but he uh, used to play for the University of Florida and then went on to the New England Patriots. He was convicted in a murder case and then eventually hung himself in prison. His investigative report about how did this guy get from that, from a successful football player to where he ended up. And there was a phone conversation he had in jail that they have investigative team has gotten a hold of. And in that 
phone call back to his family that lived in poverty in some ways in Bristol, Connecticut. He said, I had absolutely everything I ever wanted and it led me to a place where I didn't want to be. It was never enough. And I think about even today as we're talking, I think there's still a game going over over in London. Some of you may have gotten alerts if it's ended. You don't tell me. All right. And those guys over there, man, there are a lot of people in our society would say, that's my dream. And you read story after story after story of those guys ending their games and not knowing how to live life. The breastplate of righteousness is this idea that the best life we can possibly live is under the righteousness of God, being right with God because of what Jesus has done. Romans 8, 1 says that for those of us who are believers in Jesus, Satan will try to tell you that you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. But for those who are in Jesus, that we also must understand that once we've accepted Christ as our Savior, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Now, for the last 11 years, I've told you that in the Bible, the word all means. Can I tell you what the word no means? No. No condemnation. None. Zilch. Zero. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And when the enemy tries to tell you you're not good enough, if you're a child of God, God has already declared you righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that it's not because of us. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who might become the righteousness of God? We. Who's we? The followers of Jesus Christ. Those who have accepted salvation from Him. And we are the righteousness of God. That is not a name that I normally just in my flesh associate with myself. Man, I am the righteousness of God. It's not a self-righteousness. It's from Christ. But that's who we're declared to be. And this last one from Philippians chapter 3. Because of Him, because of Christ, this is Paul talking, I've suffered the loss of all things and I don't care anymore because I consider them as dung. Poop. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having, look at this, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. He says, I don't have my own righteousness, it is from God. But once I have that, guess what I want to do? I want to share it and use it and live in it for the glory of God with all that I am. So we live truthfully. We live faithfully. And then the last thing from this week we're going to look at, we live prepared. He says, I want you, first of all, to have the belt that keeps you together, keeps everything together. And that's the truth, the truth of who God is and then the way you live that out in your life. And I want the breastplate of righteousness fastened in that that protects your internal words, that protects your heart, that protects who you are, knowing that Christ has saved you and his righteousness has covered you. And so Satan can't do anything about your salvation. It doesn't matter. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been saved by him. It doesn't matter what attacks are brought into your life. He cannot take away your salvation. And then he says, and with your feet shod. Well, that's a word we don't use a lot, right? Shod. It's like shoe as a verb. I'm going to, just in the morning, tell your kids, hey, can y'all get shod before we get in the car? 
right? That would add to the 30 minutes it takes to find the shoes. They figure out what you were trying to tell them, all right? But he says, get your feet shod with the feet of sharing the gospel. Now, here's the thing. On the soldier's uniform, the feet were vitally important, just like cleats are for modern sports or work boots are for a modern guy working on the job site. They would have these kind of flat sandals, but they would tie all the way up around the calf, all the way up to the knee. And on the bottom of them, much like even today runners will run, they had spikes on the bottom so that when the attack came, they could literally stand firm. We'll talk about the shield in a couple of weeks. They would put the shield here. They would have their sword behind. They would have everything guard. And they would use those feet to dig in, to entrench themselves, and to stand firm. And it says in this particular passage, the way that we're going to stand firm, the way that we're going to shore ourselves up is to make sure we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're willing and able and ready at all times to share. Because the greatest victory that comes in the midst of this war that is still raging, that has already been declared won, is when somebody gives their life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and their eternity is forever changed. And we have to be ready at all times To share. Paul would often ask, and we'll pray at the end of this, ask them to pray for him, that they would pray for his boldness. To be able to say the things God wants him to say when he wants him to say them. I told you last week that we spent our fall break uh, at the beach for a few days until the red tide and Hurricane Michael drove us out. And on the way back from the beach, um, we got in a little fender bender. That, um, you know, fender benders today aren't what they used to be. It's a little more expensive than normal fender benders. We've got nice estimates on how much it's going to cost to fix it. And so um, we had to get something fixed, actually, where we had the wreck in Andalusia, Alabama. Lovely little town in the middle of nowhere, Alabama. Um, Great car dealership there. Took care of us really well. For the seven hours, we got to spend part of our vacation sitting in a um, waiting room of a car dealership in Andalusia, Alabama. All right. And so in Andalusia, Alabama, we got part of the car fixed. We came all the way back this week. We're talking through insurance. It's uh, other guy's fault. The other guy's insurance is paying. So we have to coordinate with all that. We do get estimates. We had to go talk to, to Mike. And Mike uh, Donahoe's going to take care of fixing the car for us. And so I'd take it to Mike's shop um, this week. And I took it to Mike. Mike told me to bring it. I called the rental car place. And rental car place uh, said, yeah, or the insurance put me in the rental car place called them we'll have something ready for you let us know when you get to the dealership and so this whole thing i don't know if you've dealt with this recently you just have things that interrupt your life that you didn't intend to interrupt your life gonna get an amen in the house of the lord like things just happen and when things happen i don't know if this happens to you but sometimes i'm upset that i can't control the things that happen that aren't supposed to happen right like i get frustrated by it and so I'm there and dropped it off. I'm, ex- I'm you know, I know Mike's going to do a good job. I'm excited about that. But I call the, I call a little bit before I get to the dealership because I know that call when you get, I mean, when I get a little bit before I get to the body shop, because I know call when you get there means once you call, we'll try to figure something out to come get you. So I call a little bit before and the guy goes, oh, you need us to pick you up today? Yeah, we had this conversation yesterday. Um, oh, well, all of our drivers are out. It's going to be a little while. Like, like, what's a little while? Well, let me check. Let me put you on hold. That lovely music that's supposed to soothe you, that drives you nuts, you know, like several minutes, comes back, and 
Oh, oh yeah, okay. Well, it'll, it'll, it won't be more than 30 minutes. Okay. So part of me wants to say something back to them. But I have this fear that everywhere I go, it's labeled Reverend Lyle Larson, all right? And I don't want that to be an issue. So I'm like, okay, that's good. And so uh, I wait. Well, I'm standing, I'm sitting in, in the um, kind of the waiting room of Mike's shop. And I look out, and this guy just pulls in the middle. It's over on Louisville Highway, divided, you know, highway with a turn signal in it. And he just stops in the middle of the turn lane. The guy working for Mike says, hey, I think that looks like one of their rides. That looks like your ride. I was like, all right. So I walk outside, and he goes, are you looking for to be picked up? I said, yeah, Mr. Larson, yes. He goes, okay, I'm ready. He's out in the middle of the road. (laughs) Now, there was somebody that had pulled in that was kind of blocking how we could get in because they were dropping something off. And I said, oh, you want me to come? Yeah, just come on. And I'm like, okay. And so... this ever happen? Like your frustration level starts to rise a little bit. Like, it's feel like, what, is, uh, what am I going to, what car am I going to get when I get there? Like, what are we doing here? And so I walk out in the middle of Louisville Highway, away for the cars to stop, get around to the edge, open the door, get in real quick, sit down. And, and this is no lie. He's got the heat set to 83 in the vehicle. And I got my coat on because it's a little cool outside. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, this is, this is hot. I like, I know y'all don't know about it, but like I would be fine at 65 at all times. It's, I got some amens on that. All right. So that's 20 degrees above my comfort zone right here. All right. And I get in and I'm sitting there and just kind of sulking for a minute. Day hadn't gone like I expected it to go. Not really sure how it's going to go the rest of the day. So I think I better make some small talk with this guy just to get my mind off. And I say, so how are you? He goes, I'm not good. (laughs) Okay. Had surgery two weeks ago and I've been in pain ever since. And I really, I mean, it really hurts to do anything. I wanted to say, like, like drive? Like, is that... Do we need to swap places? So uh, how long have you worked for the company? How long have you been there? You know, just trying to make small talk. And then uh, eventually, you know, I'm sitting there. The Lord's kind of pricking my spirit a little bit. Like this guy's in pain. Like it's hard. And then he says, so what do you do? And I was like, "Um, I'm a school teacher. And uh, no, it's not. It's not what I said. Kind of would have to go back to that point two times ago, right? Like, live truthfully. I said, I'm a pastor in Goodlettsville. He said, he said, I've been wanting someone to pray for me today. He said, could you pray? And it was just that little, I've been, here's the thing. You know what I'd done the afternoon before I left the office to go that next morning to do all that? I had studied getting your feet prepared to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God provided an opportunity right there to pray with him. We ended up having a good conversation on the way back. We got to the dealership, or not to the dealership, to the rental car place, and walked in. You know, they, they don't have the car that I, they're supposed to have. They don't have all the stuff they're supposed to have. But before we could even get to the dealing, I walked in, and I was talking to the guy at the counter, and that guy comes from behind with the biggest smile on his face, and he said, that's Reverend Larson right there. 
which means I can't complain a whole lot right now. That's what that means. Can I get an amen in the house? But it was just a reminder to be ready at all times. I'll be honest with you. My first thought when he said I don't feel well was one of like inconvenience. And when he asked me to pray for him and we had that moment in the truck driving back. I just gave God a moment at the end and said, thank you for reminding me again that opportunities are all around us. Here's what I want to ask you to do this week. And I want you to think about the impact that this could have. Okay. What if every one of us in this room looked for an opportunity every day to share with someone about Jesus? Now, I'm not talking about like full on grabbing somebody off the street like, hey, I got to tell you about Jesus right now. Paul didn't pray for being obnoxious. He prays for boldness. I'm not saying that sometimes that may not be what you need to do. The Lord lays on your heart. You do what the Lord lays on your heart. I'm talking about in the natural flow of your day with people you interact with, coworkers, friends, people that work that in place, a guy that drives you to go get the rental car that you got to have because your car's got lots of damage sitting in the body shop. Now, just imagine, okay, there are 300 plus of us here today. If we did that for five days, that's 1,500 interactions about the gospel in the next week. It's not that hard. My guess is, if we just did one this week each, that'd be about 280 more than we've had in the previous week. That's just from the statistics that I've seen. We live truthfully. Living what we believe. Speaking what we believe. Being truthful. We live protected by the righteousness of Christ because he is the one that gave it to us. And we live ready to share the gospel. To tell people about how good Jesus is. Well, I don't even know what to say. You just... Live honestly about what Jesus has done for you. Who you were before you were saved. How you got saved. How life's been since then. Especially right now. Don't be a hypocrite. Say things that hadn't happened. But be honest. And tell people how great our God is. Based on all of that, he says in verse 13. Take up the full armor of God. So that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. Now here's the reason we do that, and it's the last word of that passage, and then I'm done. It's because we know that when we offer people or talk to people about our Jesus and the salvation that comes from him, it is the only true Peace that ever comes. And the only hope they have is Jesus. It is the most loving thing you can do to tell them about Jesus. Let's pray together.